that which completes the whole will not sound forth until we stand before the throne of God and the Lamb in our glorified bodies. That becomes a very important theme for us here. You know why? Because not, God's not done. He's not done. He's not done with you. And He's not going to be done with you until you stand in glory. That's why we need to deliberately grow in faith. And remember, if you want your faith in God to increase, you must increase in your, no- in your knowledge of God. When you grow in your knowledge of God, then you will know the object of your faith can be unquestionably obeyed and trusted, can be trusted to be continually with you. God will never leave or forsake us. We're getting to that passage in Hebrews. He can be absolutely relied upon, and he can be emphatically shouted about in praise because what God says is true. And so therefore, his faithfulness is unending and it's, His mercies are new every day for us. But it's a fight. Between now and glory, it's a fight. Have you gotten that yet? This last song that we just sang, we are in the valley more than we're anywhere else in our life. You know that, right? And so therefore, when you learn to live there, then you will learn everything God wants you to know. And you know what? You may... We may live there 99% of the time of our life. Some with different percentages, but, and we may be on the mountaintop once in a while, but most of the time we're in the valley. Paul reminded the young pastor Timothy, fight the fight of faith. When he said to him, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. And the faith, the body of truth given to the church that we are to have those convictions in which we are grounded in Scripture and firmly connected with Scripture, and therefore our faith becomes impregnable and unbreakable. We must all fight the fight of faith as sojourners. Every single one of us must do that. It was John Piper who said, and I'm only giving excerpts of what he says, our ministries ought to have a wartime flavor. And it shouldn't make the average person in the church a bit uncomfortable. It should have a strange mixture of tenderness and toughness that keeps people a little off balance. A persuasive summons of something more, something hazardous, something wonderful about the Christian life. A saltiness and a brightness about your life and your church, something like Jesus Salt and light with the joyful embrace of suffering. That's what the world's looking for. It's looking for people who live their faith. Hopefully we still find people today on the honor roll of faith. Though they may be hard to come across. Young men and women who will hold their lives cheap and will be faithful unto death who will lose their life for Christ. Those who will live wisely yet dangerously because the walk of faith is a dangerous walk. We are walking on the precipice easily because of our weaknesses and frailty we can fall over but God keeps us. Our faith keeps our eyes upon Him. And yes, we're a bit reckless in our service. That in this time we can find men of prayer, men who count God's Word more important than their daily food. Men like Moses who commune with God face to faith. Men who are God's men and God's women. Both. So, see, the people of the church, the church, the real church, ought never to be much like the world around them. The world is not impressed with us. 
prosperous, wealthy. John Piper says, middle class, do what everyone else does. We shouldn't desire to have a church like that. You shouldn't desire to live your life like that. We ought to have a flavor about our life that's risky and radical. And I, what creates this radical and risky risk-taking is the reward, what's at the end, the prize. The reward is coming, and it should be everything to the believer. What is the reward? Well, let me remind you. It's the incomparable glory that waits all who are faithful to the end. For Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. It is also the imperishable inheritance prepared by God's, for God's redeemed people where Peter wrote, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, received in heaven, reserved in heaven for you. And then, of course, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will bestow on all who love his appearing, where Paul again wrote to the young pastor Timothy, in the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. See, there is a reward waiting for us. And we cannot get that reward here. Those who live by faith treasure their future reward vastly more than they treasure this world, more than they treasure their wives, their husbands, their children, their wealth, their comfort, their security, their exercise, their books, their music, their sex, their leisure, their vacation, their houses, their jobs, their success, their friendships. More than that. That's what it's about. And we, brethren, should treasure our future reward a million times more than we treasure anything in or of this world. Christ, the one precious and the one most glorious, is our reward. If you abandon the struggle... You abandon the prize. And I think one of the chief characteristics of true conversion is you keep going no matter what. You keep going, nothing can stop you. You may get slowed down, but nothing could stop you. See, that's a fruit of conversion that you will persevere till the end. So there's going to be a struggle. The followers of Christ are to run the race in order to reach the goal, to finish, to receive the reward. So in the present, what are we to do? I'm going to go back and remind you that the great essential need for you and I right now, Hebrews 10.36, if you remember, not that far, not long ago, it says in verse 36, you have need of of endurance that's what you need that's what I need we need endurance and the word means to persevere and it means to persevere under misfortunes under trials to hold fast to one's faith in Jesus Christ no matter what's happening around you or in your life yes as we find out in our next passage we're going to deal with, that biblical faith does something. Biblical faith rocks your life. Biblical faith does have a flavor about it that is risky and that is radical. And when those around you catch a glimpse of that kind of faith, it stupefies them. It astounds those who are in the world looking on those who actually live by faith. 
and they feel uncomfortable around those who live by faith. But at the same time, they often admire those who live by faith, or otherwise they ignore those who live by faith, or they take out their weapons and they try to make those who live by faith look ashamed and ridiculous, and of course, they, that even leads to downright uh, hatred, which of course leads to other things. So now the writer of Hebrews, in verse number 32 of chapter 11, comes and touches on this wide range of, of incidents down through the centuries of Israel's history. And this is how he starts it off. Look at verse 32. What more shall I say? Chapter 11, verse 32. For time will fail me if I tell you if I tell of Gideon and then this long list of people. In other words, he's saying, listen, I can go on and on of explaining to you people of faith, people who actually lived this way, radically and, and risky. And that's what he does, but he, he does it in very rapid-fire succession now until the end of the chapter. And so he brings people in from the entry into the promised land, a group of people there, and then through the times of the kings, and then through the times of exile and return, the times of the prophets, in other words, and then the period of the Old Testament and New Testament, the intertestamental period, and then into the New Testament. He just picks out people and usually starts with the most important person within that category of time, and he begins to just lay it out before us and remind us that they, these people have gone before us and they've gone before us and endured some real, real heavy stuff and didn't quit. Didn't stop, but continued to endure. So this section is about endurance. There are at least three things we should at least consider when we come, when it comes to endurance especially endurance of our faith. And here's the first one. Here's the first thing to consider. That when times are a-changing, you hear that? When times are a-changing, endure by faith unto the end. You know why? Because we live in a day and a time of change. Everybody did. And what do I mean by that? When times are a-changing, well... For example, when things change and the times in which you live end up being people just backsliding from God and just a bunch of apostasy, people leaving the faith, people leaving following God. When you live during a time like that, is it impossible to endure? And the answer to that is no. What time am I talking about it? Well, take, take your Bibles and turn back to Judges. Joshua Judges. Chapter 2, verse 10. Because this is a time of definitely backsliding and apostasy. And notice how he packages it. Because Judges, of course, is a, was a horrible time in Israel's history. And this is the reason why. Judges chapter 2, verse 10. It says, All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Verse 11, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord. And then in Judges chapter 17 in verse 6 you don't need to turn there you could if you'd like but it says this in those days there was no king in israel and every man did that which was right in his own eyes now when that happens when there's no knowledge passed down to the next generation and then everybody does what they think is right in their own eyes what do you think living during that time looks like how is that going to stretch your faith or my faith? I mean, we're, we're kind of in that, in the world situation, we're kind of in that kind of time. Not, not as bad as here, but we're in that time. Can anybody live by faith? Well, the first example that 
the writer of Hebrews gives in verse number 32, where he says, For time will fail me if I tell you of Gideon, and then he says of Barak, Sanson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets. He puts them, lumps them all together. Now that's a, a large time frame in Scripture, but let's look back, being that we're in Judges, at Gideon for a minute. Gideon, in chapter 6, in verse 15 and 16, had a phenomenal victory over the Midianites, and by God's command, reduced his troops from 32,000 to 10,000, and then from 10,000 to 300. And then look what it says in verse number 15 of Judges 6. He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. Now look over to chapter 7, verse 12. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were in the as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So here's Gideon going up against two mighty armies. He is clearly outnumbered. The God, God himself reduces the tr his troops down to 300, armed with trumpets, pitchers that hid torches or lights. And what did he do? When God said, blow the trumpets and smash the lanterns in the sense, and now the lights were exposed, the Midianites took off. See, God did that. See, that was the faith. He had faith in God that if God reduces the troops to almost nothing, God will win for them. See, they totally outnumber and God wins. See, he was a, in a sense, an army of one because he trusted God. See, that's what faith does. And then also there's Barak. He's also in the book of Judges. Chapter 4 and verse number 9, the middle of the verse, let me just give you something about Barak with only 10,000 men came against the great army of, of Sisera with its 900 chariots of iron and myriads of, of troops. He had to trust God to also fight for him. And Lewis says in verse number 9, middle of the verse, For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. So how is God going to deliver to Barak Sisera? Through a woman. How is he going to do that? I thought he had all these troops. What's a woman have to do with it? Well, look at verse number 13. Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, all the people who were with him, from Harosheth Hagoyim to the river Kaisan, Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor, and 10,000 men following him. And then look what it says in verse 15. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword from Bar Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away. In other words, he got out of his chariot and booked. He says, I'm getting out of here. This is a dangerous place to be. Verse 17, now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin and the king of Hazor and the house of Heber, the Kenite. Jael, verse 18, went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master. Turn aside to me. Don't be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And she said, he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink. Then she covered him. Verse 20, he said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be, if anyone comes and inquires of you and, and says, Is there anyone here? You shall say no. Look at verse 21. But Jael, Hebert's wife, Heber's wife, 
took a tent peg and seized the hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went through it into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted, so he died. That's pretty horrible stuff, isn't it? That's what happened when people do, does, when people, when peoples do things in their own understanding, in their own sight, without knowledge of the Lord. This is how bad it gets. And then verse 22, And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entreated her with her, and he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was laying dead with the tent peg in his temple. And look at verse 25. So God subdued on that day Jabin the king of Canaan before the sons of Israel. So what's happening here? Barak trusted God. And how does God deliver him? Through a woman. That's pretty humbling when you come to soldiers like this. So see, it was a time of backsliding and apostasy. But there's a next section here. When people live in times when people do that which is right in their own eyes, then that's how it looks. And now the next part of Scripture where it talks about in Hebrews that it mentions uh, Samson. That was a time of foolishness, Samson. Matter of fact, Samson, if you ever read through, actually, matter of fact, if you're going through the Bible now, when you're a Bible, you should be reading through these sections of Scripture about now. And Samson is, is kind of like a jerky kind of individual, even though he's really strong and powerful. It's some of the things that are going on in that, that book is kind of like a picture of foolishness. And that was definitely wrapped up in the life of, of Samson, yet he knew God made him a judge of Israel and gave him great strength and power because he was the one that was going to deliver Israel from the Philistines. He ended up, of course, being blinded and, and regained his strength uh, and, and even his spiritual perspective. And at last, the last act of his life of faith, he pulled down the pillars, remember that? Of the temple of Dagon, the false idol that the Philistines worshipped and he pulled down the houses, the temple upon them and thousands got killed in one instance in, in fact the Bible says listen he killed more at his death than those he killed in his life he was a judge but he trusted God in the last minute after losing his eyesight and after uh really blowing it in some instances now delivered Israel by pulling down the pillars and the temple falls in. Again, a time of foolishness. But who has faith? A guy named Samson has faith. He trusts God and God delivers them. And God's doing this all on behalf of his people. Why? There's no rule. There's no, there's no law. There's no kings. You just have these judges that God raised up with all their frailty, with all their weakness, and God uses them as examples of faith. And then there's another one in this era of foolishness. That's Jephthah. You probably didn't ever hear much about Jephthah, but he was the Ill illegitimate son and outcast, which back, uh, which actually back, in, he was also a judge of Israel, and he saved Israel. Judges 11, if you're there, uh, he conquered because of his faith in God. And it says in the Word of God in verse 30 of chapter 11, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and says, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, that seems like a noble gesture before God to offer to the Lord whatever comes out of his door when he um, comes back from a victory and he did have the victory God gave him the victory but look what it says in verse 34 when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah behold his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing now she was 
his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. And then verse number 39, it says, And at the end of two months, he let her go away for two months to mourn uh, because she wouldn't be able to get married and have a family. And it says at the end of two months, she returned to verse 39 to her father who did to her according to the vow which she had made and she had no relations with a man. So again, a time of foolishness. God delivered the Ammonites into his hand and yet because of this crazy vow he made he had a sacrifice his daughter see when people don't do what god says things are crazy how do how do you where do you put stuff like that there's really you know where to put it and then you also have a time of idolatry worldliness and rejection when it's recorded now in first samuel chapter 8 it, there comes a time where Samuel becomes the last judge of Israel and Samuel becomes the first prophet of Israel. He has a very unique position. And what happens at the end of Judges is that the people finally reject God outright. So it's a time of idolatry. They worship the Baals. It's a time of worldliness. It's a time of rejection of God. And if you want to look at it with me, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4, this is what happened. It says, Then all the elders of Israel, verse 4, gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations verse 6 but the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when he said give us a king to judge us and Samuel prayed to the Lord and Luther the Lord says in verse 7 the Lord said to Samuel listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you for they have not rejected you they have rejected me from being king over them like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, if in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. So the prophet feels the re rejection of the people rejecting God as king. He feels that rejection too. God comforts Samuel, who was a prophet since he was a little boy. His mom gave him over to be a prophet from uh, his birth once, once he, he was weaned and so he was faithful right to the end and here the people say we don't want God to be king we want a king like everybody else has around us and so see it's a time of, of rejection it was, it's a time where people say I don't want God to reign over me and so Saul is given but Saul's not mentioned at all in Hebrews because he was not a man of faith Saul David, though, is mentioned. He's the only king mentioned in Hebrews 11. And he is the one, of course, who becomes the deliverer. He's the one who delivers Israel and becomes the king, uh, the good king. Even though he's riddled with all kinds of sins, he becomes God's man. And then, of course, it leads into the time of the prophets. And back in Hebrews chapter 11 verse number 33 not only do you have a time of foolishness a time of worldliness and rejection a time of backsliding and apostasy and when those times are times in which people lived they could endure by faith and go right to the end and every one of those people mentioned did that but there's also times in which God gives victories in which it's a good time to live it's a prosperous time to live that has its own dangers to it when it comes to faith because we can get too comfortable, too lazy. Uh, we take for granted of the things of God. 
and we forget about what it means to live by faith. And yet, when victories are at hand, we are also to endure by faith unto the end. And that's what this next section is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 33 to 35. And look what it says in there. It says, who by faith, what did they do? They conquered kingdoms. Who conquered kingdoms? David conquered kingdoms. They performed acts of righteousness. Who did that? Samuel, David, Solomon, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah, Josiah. They obtained promises. Who did that? Abraham, Joshua, Gideon, David. They shut the mouths of lions. Who did that? Daniel, Samson, David. You should have read in your Bible reading today. If you don't read it today or you didn't read it tomorrow, you read it uh, this morning. You you should read it tomorrow. Is that David, when he was just a young lad, a shepherd boy, took hold of the jaw of a lion and beat it with his staff. Young boy. So he shut the mouths of lions. He killed lions. Samson killed lions. David killed lions. Bariah killed lions. In what? In the strength of the Lord. Not in their own strength. And when Daniel prayed to God according to his usual custom in the book of Daniel, he was arrested and thrown into the lion's den. And God miraculously delivered him by sending an angel to do what? To close the mouth of the lions. And remember what Darius the king was all worried about Daniel? And he came to him and he says, the king arose with dawn when Daniel was in the lion's den all night. At the break of day, he didn't need anything. He didn't have any entertainment. And he went into the, uh, in haste to the lion's den. And then he says, and when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice, the king. The king spoke and said, Daniel, Servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? I mean, he's waiting for a response. If you don't hear anything, he knows it's over, right? Uh, and this is what Daniel said O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions, and they have not harmed. See, that's faith. Who can be in a situation like that without faith? Without this kind of faith? Without this risky faith? Without this kind of understanding of who God is? And then, of course, in Daniel, uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, those who quenched the power of fire. Who did that? Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, right? God can deliver us, but if you don't decide to do it, that's all right, too. But we're not bound down to your gods. See, that's faith. That's faith. Your life's on the line. That's faith. We need that kind of faith. You you and I need that kind of faith in our little lives that we have. With the little troubles we have, we make our troubles out bigger than what they are. And therefore, it crushes us, it weakens us, and God becomes a little thing instead of who He really is, this great God and Savior that we're to worship. We have to be very very careful that doesn't happen to us because that's exactly what Satan wants to do to you. He wants to minimize your understanding of who God is and make him into an idol that you have to carry around. You have to help out. You have to feed. You have to offer things too. That's not the God of the Bible. Sorry. The God of the Bible is mighty. And he'll deliver you if he needs to deliver you. But ultimately, in the end, we are all delivered. That's the point. Faith sees the invisible. Faith sees what's beyond. Faith believes the promise of eternal life. That's what faith believes. They escaped the edge of the sword. Who did that? Elijah and David, many others. Also, from weakness were made strong. Who from weakness were made strong? Samuel. Excuse me. uh, Samson was at the last end made strong. David, Goliath. David, a little boy coming against a giant Goliath and with one stone flung it from his shepherd's slingshot. Right, thank you. And it sunk in his head and he fell face forward and then David struggled with his gigantic uh, sword and cut his head off. 
pulled his head off and brought it to Saul. See, these are real stories about real people. These are not fairy tales. They're not fables. This is about the God in whom we worship. When David came before Goliath, he says, you may come with staff and swords, but I come in the name of the God of Israel in whom you defy, right? I come in his name. And that's it. It's over. It doesn't take much for God to do what he has to do if we have faith. And then we put foreign armies to flight. Many come under that. And then notice verse 35. Women receive back their dead by resurrection. In the Old Testament, who was that? Elijah's, Elijah, when he was ministering, the son of the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings, where he says, My Lord God, let this boy's life return to him. And it did. And then Elisha, the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings, the same thing happened. And then in the New Testament, the widow of Nain received back her child. Lazarus, remember Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. Martha, he comes back to life. Jesus is the one who brings him back. And then it goes on and on. And all this showing that God's power is much greater than the grave that Jesus is alive and working among His people and in this world. And so the helpless people and the helplessness that we all encounter in the face of death is removed by the resurrection power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that no one, outside of God's, no one is outside of God's reach, no matter how helpless they have become. And then, of course, you have at the resurrection of Jesus. Many believers who died, what happens to them? They come out of the graves. Where when Jesus, it says in Scripture in Matthew, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Turn back to Hebrews for a minute. And it tells us in Hebrews. That others were tortured. Not accepting their release. So that they might obtain a better resurrection. Verse 35. And, of course, a better resurrection, most likely, uh, well, is contrasted with the other resurrections mentioned in the passage. In other words, the young sons restored to their mothers were given, once again, the temporary gift of life, only to die again. So, in a sense, it was a resuscitation for a period of time, only to die again. But, by contrast... The better resurrection that they look forward to has to do with the final defeat and being raised to eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's what we all have to look forward to. So while we're in this world, we need our Lord to continually rescue us from the effects of the fall. The curse has been removed because of the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb, and Christ bore the penalty for our sins on the cross, but we who are saved will not be removed completely from the effects of the curse until we are home with Christ in the city of God. So see, the key of successful endurance is faith. And your faith grows when your knowledge of God grows, when your understanding of God is correct. And then there's one last thing. When suffering and even martyrdom may be your lot, you ought to endure by faith until the end. In verse 36 to 40, the ill treatment that came upon these believers as a direct consequence of, of them having embraced the Christian faith because they had become open followers of Christ. It says in the Word of God in verse 36 of 
Hebrews 11, and others experience mockings and scourgings and, uh, yes, also chains and imprisonment. Who was that? Jeremiah comes to mind. They really tortured that guy. And Joseph and Micah and Elijah and onward, people can fit into that category. And then they were stoned. Zechariah was stoned to death by his own people because he told them the truth. And then notice this next one. They were sawn in two. Some say this was Urijah the prophet. But there it, it uses just the word sword. There's really no connection that you can find for this particular passage except a Jewish legend. That Isaiah the prophet was the one he was talking about. This is what it says. Jewish legend has it that Isaiah the prophet was sawn in two. Hezekiah the good king died and Manasseh came to the throne. He worshipped idols and tried to compel Isaiah to take part in his idolatry and approve it. Isaiah refused and was condemned to be sawn asunder with a wooden saw. While his enemies tried to make him recant his faith, he steadily defied them and prophesied their doom. And while he saw, and while the saw cut into his flesh, Isaiah uttered no complaint, shed no tears, but did not cease to commune with the Holy Spirit till the saw had cloven him to the middle of his body. I don't doubt that about Isaiah. If you know anything about his ministry, God says pretty much you're going to go to these people and preach, and no one's going to listen. So, if you preach the word of God and no one listens, then people don't like you. Matter of fact, lots and lots of people hate you. And they're just looking for an opportunity to do you in. So that is not uh, something that you can substantiate by Scripture, but it sure sounds like that's exactly what happened to Isaiah. And then it says there, they were tempted in Hebrews 11, they were put to death with, with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. This section really has to do with the prophets. This is how they treated the prophets. That's why when you get into the uh, Gospels, you see how Jesus kept saying, this is, you, you uh, treated the prophets like this. I sent the prophets to, to you to give a word from God, and you killed them. You abused them. You stoned them. You ostracized them. You imprisoned them. You didn't listen to them. Why didn't they? Because they already rejected God. And if they rejected God, they're going to reject the messengers that God sends to tell them the truth. Matter of fact, Zechariah was stoned to death simply because he told them exactly what God wanted them to hear, the truth. And they stoned them for that. You know why? They didn't want to hear the truth. They wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. And then in verse 38, if you notice there it says men of whom the world was not worthy men of whom the world was not worthy world meaning humanity and rebellion against god and of course men in rebellion against god judge god's men as unworthy for this world And what are they? What, what do they do? They wander in deserts, in verse 38, in mountains and caves and holes in the ground. See, if you don't read this section with this thought, my life's not that bad. And most likely, your life will not get that bad. Thank the Lord, right? But it may get that bad. But in any case, whether God provides a time of blessing and victory, whether it's a time of apostasy and rejection, those are not the point he's making. The point is make, he's making is this. You can, by faith, in any time you live, endure. Right to the end, even if it means losing your life. Because you have not lost your life in Christ. You've gained it. Isn't that what we just sung about? My loss is my gain. In fact, in each one of these 
people mentioned here, there's a striking similarity in their faith. And here it is. Each lived in a time faith in God was scarce. Each battled an overwhelming odd. Each had to stand alone. Each had a flawed faith. You find no perfect people in this lot. And you know what? The Bible puts it all, all out before us. There's no perfect people that he uses. So in your flaws and in my flaws and even in my sin, God will use me. He will increase my faith. I can endure. You can endure. You have the victory. You are Christ. That's why. So that is, this is radical and this is risky faith. But it's the kind of faith that shows shows forth real conversion to Christ and resolve not to shrink back, not to apostatize, not to throw in your towel, not to sit on the bench. No, that's not what you're to do. You're to keep going. You're to keep pressing on. You're to keep growing stronger in the Lord. And look at verse number 39 of Hebrews 11. Because of this kind of faith, it obtains a good report before God. And all these having gained approval through their faith, But look what else it says. Did not receive what was promised. Again, an unfinished symphony. This verse has already been mentioned in Hebrews 11.2. He uses the same thing where he said, men of old gained approval. And the the phrase gained approval spoke of the public witness to a person's character. And in this case, God testifies to their faith. These are mine. I'm going to keep them. They're going to endure. They're going to persevere to the end. And they're going to, in their life, show the world that God is real. This is the kind of faith the ancients had that enabled them to endure through all kinds of difficult situations right to the end, to live in this manner. Assumes that one has a living knowledge of God, that they know how to gain approval of God. They know how to live for God and please God. They know how to serve God. But this must always be kept in our mind. This must always be kept in faith's sights, that even faith rewarded in this life is only partial fulfillment of the promise that the fullness of what God has in mind for us would not be known until we stand before God beyond the grave we will never fully realize what God has for us in this life only in heaven and if you look at the end of verse number 39 it says and they did not receive what was promised they didn't receive it why didn't they receive it verse 40 because God had provided something better he didn't say there for them what does he say he says God provided something better for us now he takes us and he throws us into the mix with all the others who've gone before And he says this, he provided something better for us, and then it says, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. In other words, the Old Testament, on that side of the cross, they had to be saved by the atoning work of Christ on the cross. We, on the other side of the cross, have to be saved by the atoning work of Christ on the cross, and together we're going to be made perfect. No one can go without going through the cross. So don't forget, we are God's unfinished symphony. The final movement of the symphony, that which completes the whole, will not sound forth until we stand before the throne of God and of the Lamb in our glorified bodies. But between now and then, it may be really rough waters. What's going to get you through? I'll tell you what's going to get you through. Faith. Faith always sees 
God's way. Faith always looks to the character of God and the promises of God, and no one can take that from you. Even if they take your life, they cannot take that. So it's our turn. I said it before, it's our turn to live on the earth today with enduring faith, to believe the unseen, to trust God's promises, to wait and hope expectantly in that which the great Savior, Jesus Christ, will bring to ultimate fulfillment in the end. Why? Because we have a great cloud of witnesses. That's why. We have a great cloud of witnesses that have finished the race already, and they're waiting for us to finish. So that's what he does in chapter 12. Look at verse number 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So how are we to run? With endurance. So that's what we are. We are runners in the Christian race and the moment you became a Christian you entered the race there are no benches to sit down on but there's a great cloud in the stands cheering us on waiting for God's plan to come to a conclusion to be consummated and bring it all to an end a glorious end and all the promises of God will happen so enduring faith works in any kind of environment during any kind of circumstance but the end but its end has the same destination so that ends the chapter 11 on faith and I pray that uh, both you and I would learn daily uh, to live that way and to trust God in that way and to examine our environment and our circumstances uh, to see what is keeping us from growing in faith. What is keeping us in the rut where we're not holding to our joy? What's, what's moving us? What's preventing us from moving forward what sin what encumbrance is holding us back from running this race how come we're not enduring how come we want to sit on the bench more than we want to run why that's what you need to answer and we're going to try to answer that question in the weeks ahead let's pray lord thank you so much for your word lord just looking at this rapid fire section of men of faith and women of faith who, who have looked to you and kept to the promise and, and didn't give up and didn't throw in the towel, even in the face of incredible odds, when they were outnumbered, when they should have given in, they didn't because they trusted in you. They knew you had something better for them beyond this life. And Lord, you do, and thank you for it. We want to praise you. We want to give you glory because you are a great God. Continue to increase our knowledge of you so our faith increase, increases, Lord. And let us always know that you keep your hand on us. You're causing us to persevere until the end. So in our times of weakness, Lord, help us to know your presence is there. And I pray this in your name. Amen.